0: Take your Bibles and open them to 2 Thessalonians. We will be in verses 1 through 12 uh, today. About a year ago, my wife Charlotte uh, decided it was time that uh, she bought a new running partner. I'm not much of a running partner for her, so. we started looking at different dogs and different dog breeds, something that would, that would meet her specific needs, but also meet the needs of our family, and we picked a dog out. His name is Axe. I, I thought about actually bringing him today, but uh, uh, I didn't think that would go very well. But Axe is a, is a tremendous dog. He can run for miles and miles. He's a good protection dog, and he's a, he's a good family dog for our particular family, Uh, That's a family of mainly boys, and um, one thing about Axe that you will notice if you're around him very long is that he has an incredible motor, okay? He does not easily tire. He has a lot of drive. I think veterinarians say that he's a high drive dog. Um, He's he's of the working class, uh, and so he is ready to work at 4.30 in the morning, every morning. He's ready to go to work. And uh, Charlotte puts a lot of time and effort into playing with him and into giving him jobs to do. And one of the things that, that Axe and I like to do together is, is play tug-of-war. Um, but we don't play with a rope, we play with a broom. Uh, we learned very early on that Axe does not like brooms, he does not like house cleaning. And so when you start, when you start uh, moving the broom, he clamps on to the bristles, And I want to tell you that he puts a death grip on those bristles. He has uh, destroyed several brooms in his very short lifetime. But to to try to get it away from him is almost impossible. And um, if I ever want to get my broom back in one piece, I have to use deception to get it back. (laughs) And so I will take a a toy that, that I find in the yard or a an old ball, and I will act like I'm more interested in that ball than I am that broom. And most of the time, he will be distracted by that toy that I have, and he will let the broom go. And as we move into chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, this, this this story about Acts is a good analogy uh, as to what is going on in 2 Thessalonians. The, the Thessalonians have already been taught at length by Paul. Uh, He has taught them about the rapture. He has taught them about the day of the Lord. He has taught them that they are two separate events. The rapture is the gathering of the church, the catching away of the church to meet Jesus in the air. And the day of the Lord is a day of judgments. It is a day for the wicked. It is a day for the unbeliever. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Tim preached on this a few weeks ago, but he says in chapter 5 that these two days, the the catching away and the day of the Lord are as different as night and day. And he tells the Thessalonians that they are children of the day. The night, the darkness, the day of the Lord should not catch them by surprise. He goes on to say in verse 9 that God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to tell the Thessalonians to encourage and build each other up with this teaching. So it is very clear that Paul has already talked about these two things with the Thessalonians. They were to clamp on to this truth, to hold on to this truth, unwavering. We learned last week that they are a healthy church. They are a flourishing church. But Paul has some concerns about this church because he knows that that truth that they hold so tightly to can be easily taken away through deception. And there is some false teachers in and around this church that are teaching some some false things. In fact, they are teaching the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord had already taken place. Again, that day of judgment and that the Thessalonians are experiencing that judgment. You know, the Thessalonians were... We're, we're, very, we're a very persecuted church, and so many of them were confused. Paul says the day of the Lord is, is for the unbeliever, and, and, and many feel like they've missed the rapture, they've missed the blessing, they've missed that awesome event. Many of them are confused to why they are suffering when Paul said that they were not appointed to, to, to receive wrath. And so there is some confusion. These false teachers are confusing them about the end times. Now, I want to just say this at the very beginning. When we talk about end times, they are very confusing at times. There are some things that are not very clear about end time teachings. There are some things that are very clear, and that's what we must do when we come to 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 passages of scripture that deal with the day of the Lord, the rapture and the antichrist. We've got to hold on like Acts. We've got to hold on to the things that are clear and we've got to hold on loosely to those things that aren't as clear. So Paul this morning is going to revisit these end time topics and my prayer is that we will hold on to those things that are clear and that we will be encouraged. That's what Paul wanted to do once again for the Thessalonians. He wanted to encourage them about these two events that were causing so much confusion. So let's jump into the texts. Let's read verses one and two. It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily upset in mind or troubled either by a spirit or by a message or by a letter as if it was from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has already come. So Paul jumps right into the confusion. These two areas, the day of the Lord. Again, the day of judgment, the day when Jesus comes back and brings judgment to the unbelieving wicked world, and the other event, the gathering together of the church to Jesus. And so he says, I want to talk about these two things, and I want to tell you something very important. He says, we ask you brothers. So he's asking them concerning these two events to do one thing. Okay, he says, I plead with you. That's really the better translation. We plead with you. We beg you, Thessalonians, listen to what I have to say. Okay, he wants to make it very clear this time because he knows that there was some confusion, even though he's already written to them about these two events. So he says, listen to me. Listen to this. I beg you. I plead with you. And he, and he goes on to say, don't be easily upset. Don't be easily troubled. if you've got the new King James, I think it's probably the best translation of the word here. It says, do not be soon shaken, okay The word here for upset or shaken means what you what you uh, what happens to you when you're in an earthquake, okay? You are shaken. okay? so he's saying, don't be shaken. There was something in the church. At Thessalonica, that was shaking, literally shaking the believers. It was shaking the foundation of the church. Now, I want you to understand another thing about end times. End time teaching is considered secondary teaching. I don't know if you know that, but in scripture, there is primary teaching and there is secondary teaching. Primary teaching would be the doctrine of salvation, or who is God, who is Jesus, who is the Holy Spirit. Those are primary teachings that we cannot get wrong. When it comes to end time issues, they are secondary. They do not, uh, it does not matter what you believe about end times uh, as far as your salvation is concerned. But I want to tell you this, that there is something serious going on. Many times a church can take a secondary issue and it can become a primary cause of trouble in that church. Okay, it can be most damaging. And so we've got to be careful even with with secondary beliefs because they can even begin to influence how we believe about primary issues. Now let me give you an example. The Thessalonians have been taught... Already in chapter or in in 1 Thessalonians, they've already been taught that the day of the Lord is not for them. They are children of the day. Now there's a false teacher that's going around saying, You are in the day of the Lord, you are in the judgment time of God. So if I'm I'm a Thessalonian, I'm going, Huh, something was told to me in 1 Thessalonians. And now I'm being told something different. Is God a liar? Okay, is God a liar? Well, we know that scripture says God is not a liar, but you see how you can begin to even question God. Is he a liar? There there also may be some that are thinking, well, maybe I'm not saved. Maybe I missed the rapture. Maybe I'm in this day of judgment because I, I really wasn't saved or maybe I've lost my salvation. So you can see how secondary issues can influence primary issues and how it can cause a lot of trouble in the church. And so Paul is pleading with them, don't be shaken. Don't be troubled about these end time things. That's good advice. That's just some very commonsensical good advice when you're studying end times. Don't get worried about it. Don't get upset about it. Don't be shaken by it. Hold on to the primary teachings of Scripture, and you will be just fine. Now, again, the problem with the Thessalonians is that there is some deception going on. Okay, there is some teachers out there that are trying to get the Thessalonians to let go of that primary teaching. They're wanting to deceive them, and and Paul says, don't let a spirit or a message, or a letter cause you to be upset or troubled. And again, we learn something very interesting here. There was a letter that was being circulated in the church. And the letter was acting like it was from Paul, okay? It was alleging that it was from Paul or maybe one of the other apostles. And again, the letter is saying that the day of the Lord has already taken place. So Paul points out... That false teaching comes from a false spirit, a false message, and, and it can be a false letter. And again, we learned something very interesting, that false teachers are usually influenced by a false spirit, okay? Everything that is of false teaching comes from the spiritual realm, And again, there may have been a man that thought that God was speaking to him and saying that the day of the Lord had already taken place, but that spirit was a false spirit. That person wrote a letter and it was causing a lot of confusion in the church. It's very, very damaging when a church falls into false teaching. And so Paul wants to clear up the confusion and he gives them this command. He tells them, you need to do something, church, okay? And he tells them in in verse three, he says, do not let anyone deceive you in any way. Now, that's a good message for us as well. We need to realize that even in the church, there can be deception. There can be false teachers. This world is full of lawlessness. It is full of the spirit of the Antichrist. As 1 John says, there's always been a spirit that is against God and is deceptive. And so in order for us not to be deceived, we need to realize there's deception. We need to put ourselves in an environment where we are being taught correctly, and then we have an obligation to hold on and to learn the Scripture. When it says, don't be deceived in any way, Paul is saying, you better know the word of God. You better know what you believe and why you believe it, and you better put yourself around people that believe the same way, because again, false teaching, even if it's on secondary issues, can cause a lot of trouble. And so Paul commands them, be students of the word, know your word. Don't let anyone deceive you. And so Paul wants to clear up this whole whole idea about the day of the Lord and that it it has not already come, but that it is in the future. So when we look at the second half of verse 3, we'll read that together. Paul says, For that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's sanctuary, publicizing that he himself is God. Now, what Paul does here, again, he's wanting to encourage them that the day of the Lord has not come. And so what he wants to do is he wants to give them some indicators he gives us three indicators in this text of, of when the day of the Lord is likely to come. There's gotta be some things that happen before Jesus can come back and bring that judgment. Now, I wanna remind you of something because I don't know if you caught this. Paul doesn't talk about the rapture anymore in this text. He talked about it in verse one and then he doesn't talk about it from here on out. He just, he just concentrates on on the day of the Lord. So there are no indicators in here for the rapture. You know why? Because the, 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 the teaching of the rapture is not a very clear doctrine in Scripture. And there's a lot of confusion about when that event takes place. The orthodox view has always been that it does take place before the day of the Lord, but we don't know at what points. And so Paul doesn't talk about the rapture anymore, But he does concentrate himself on the day of the Lord. And he says, that day. And again, when you see that term, that day, your your translation may have it in parentheses or may have little uh, marks beside it. But again, that day is referring to the day of the Lord. And so Paul says, that day cannot come unless the apostasy comes first. Now, let's stop there for just a second because we've talked about holding on to things that are clear and holding on to, or not holding on very tightly to things that are not clear. This text right here is is not very clear, okay? I'm just going to tell you that on the outset. There's actually three interpretations that you could have about what this apostasy is. I'm going to share all three and I'll tell you where I land personally, but... Um, But I think it's good to know what these three are. Now, some believe that this apostasy means that there will be people in the end times, church members, people that are of the faith that actually fall away from the faith. They lose their salvation. The word apostasy, one of the definitions means to fall away. And there are some that believe that in the end times, real believers will actually lose their salvation, and that will be an indicator that the day of the Lord is soon. I don't hold to that view. This church does not hold to that view. We do not believe that a person that is truly saved can lose their salvation. Okay, so I, I, I don't really like that one. But there's also another definition of the word apostasy, and that is departure, that it means departure. Now, there are some that believe that this is talking about the rapture, that when it says the apostasy, it's talking about the departure, the departure of the church to meet Christ in the air. And even though I hold to that view, I don't think that that is a good view to hold in the text. Um, Many of your translations Uh, will say something like this. The, The day cannot come until the rebellion comes. The word apostasy, its most basic meaning, means to rebel or to revolt, okay? I think that's the best translation. Again, you may disagree, but again, it's not very clear throughout Scripture what exactly this apostasy is. But we have seen in Scripture before Uh, worldwide rebellion. Okay, If you think about Genesis chapter 6, the world was completely wicked and God destroyed the world except for Noah and his family with water. After that disaster, God promised not to destroy the world again with water, but we know that there are several scriptures that talk about him coming back and destroying the world with the sword of his mouth and with his blazing glory, okay? So I think it's a pretty good idea that there will be a worldwide rebellion before Christ returns. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21, Jesus says that at that time there will be a great tribulation the kind that has not taken place from the beginning of the world until now and will never again. So Jesus speaks in Matthew 24 of a day that's coming that's not gonna be like anything that we've ever seen, not even in the days of Noah. There will be a rebellion. So that's the first indicator of the day of the Lord this apostasy or this rebellion that's going to come. Now, the second indicator, it says the day of the Lord cannot come until the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, is revealed, okay? So we, we see this term, uh, man of lawlessness. Now, we've seen this before in, in, in the book of Daniel. It talks about a future antichrist that will be called the man of lawlessness, And this, again, this son of destruction has the idea that he was born for one purpose, and that is to destroy. And so most believe that this is speaking of a future Antichrist. Now, 1 John tells us that there has always been a spirit of the Antichrist present in our world. The word anti in the Greek means against. So there has always been a a, a spirit that opposes God, opposes his Christ. John, 1 John also tells us that there have been many antichrists. There have been many men, physical men, that have embodied this anti-God, anti-Christ uh, idea. Now, in, in Daniel chapter eight, um, I've been, I've been teaching through Daniel chapter, or the whole book of Daniel this this semester. In Daniel chapter eight, uh, we learn about a guy, a Greek general named Antiochus Epiphany. And his name means Antiochus the Great, God manifests. And many people believe that, that he is a good picture of an antichrist. He's like a prototype. He was the first... Uh, model, if you will, of the Antichrist. And and this prototype is called the little horn. Okay, that's a, that's a term that is used synonymously with the Antichrist. And so we see that this prototype is called the little horn. But then we also know that in the future, there is coming a son of destruction, a man of lawlessness, and a little horn uh, who will be the future and the worst version of the Antichrist. So all of the other Antichrists added up together uh, will be this final Antichrist. And it says the day of the Lord cannot come until the Antichrist is revealed. Now, the first question that, that I would ask if I was in the church, I would say, well, how do we know him from the other Antichrist? There's been a lot of people throughout the years that, that have thought the Antichrist was living, okay? Uh, all of the Caesars, many of the, the Jews in, 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 in around 70 AD thought that there was an Antichrist. Even in our generation, even in our time, Stalin and Hitler, these guys looked like Antichrists. So how are we to know this future Antichrist from all of these other Antichrists? Well, the text tells us that there is another indicator... Uh, there is something the Antichrist will do that will be very recognizable. And uh, if you go with me to verse 4, it says that that this future Antichrist will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called god or object of worship so that he sits in God's sanctuary publicizing that he himself is God. Okay, so what the text says is that the Antichrist will set himself up in God's sanctuary and proclaim that he is God. So this future Antichrist says that he will oppose all other gods and all other forms of worship, okay? Right now, we are in a a season of tolerance. We are are told to tolerate other religions and other gods and be sensitive to those other uh, beliefs and to, those, uh, to the people that, that hold to those beliefs. But in the end, this Antichrist is going to oppose every other god out there. He's going to oppose every religion, okay? And then it says something really interesting. It says that he will sit in God's sanctuary, publicizing that he himself is God. Now, when you see that term, God's sanctuary, it's talking about the temple of God, Okay? That's talking about God's temple. Now, right now, as we speak, there is no temple uh, to speak of. There is a mosque where the temple grounds are. And so there must be a rebuilding of the temple before this can take place. And there is several prophecies that talk about in the end times the temple being rebuilt. Okay. So this antichrist, one of those indicators that the day of the Lord is near is that he will set himself up in the temple of God, the temple where God's presence is supposed to be. He's going to set himself up there and he's going to proclaim, I'm God. I'm the one you've been looking for. I'm the only God. I'm the only true God. Okay, again, that idea of an antichrist, he is going to do everything opposite of Jesus. Okay, he's going to be the anti Jesus. He's going to set himself up in the temple and proclaim that he is God. Now, have we ever seen this teaching before? The answer is yes. You see it very clearly in Daniel. But in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaks to this event as well. If you go to Matthew chapter 24, if you wanna go with me over there, you can. Um, I do wanna point out one really neat thing. In in 24 verses one and two, Jesus predicts that the temple will be destroyed, okay? When Jesus lived, okay, when he lived, there was a temple and he predicts in Matthew 24 that that temple will be completely destroyed. Okay, But then when you get into verse 15, he talks about a rebuilt temple. Listen to what it says in verse 15. It says, So when you see the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Jesus says something really amazing here. He says, you know what? You remember all that stuff Daniel said about the abomination of desolation? You remember what he spoke? That's gonna come true. And Jesus is talking to Judeans in this text and he says, when you see it, when you see this abomination, and what does he say? He says, standing in the holy place. Again, that holy place is a reference to the temple. When you see the Antichrist, he is an abomination. He is a desolation. When you see him standing, let the reader understand. Jesus is saying, you ought to be able to understand what this is. Okay? This is the future Antichrist standing in a rebuilt temple proclaiming he is God. It is an indicator that the day of the Lord is soon to come. And so Jesus tells those people in verse 16, he says, all of those in Judea, you better flee to the mountains. That's how bad the Antichrist is. Flee to the mountains. If you're on your housetop, don't come down and and pack. You need to leave now. If you're out in your field, don't go back to your home. Leave now. And then he goes on to say that this will be the great tribulation and it has never taken place before And it will never take place again. The rebellion is going to bring forth an antichrist. And this antichrist is going to be the real deal. And it's going to be a terrible time. It is going to be a great tribulation. And it says in verse 22, if those days were not cut short, no one would survive. That's how bad it is going to be in this tribulation Now, immediately after Jesus talks about the tribulation, he talks about his coming in judgments. In verse 29, he says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed light, the stars will fall from the sky, the celestial powers will be shaken, and the sun, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and immediately after that, Jesus Will return. That's what it says in Daniel. That's what it says in Thessalonians. That there will be an Antichrist, and then shortly after, there will be the day of the Lord, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul wants to encourage them that they are not in this time. There are some indicators that the day of the Lord, uh, for the day of the Lord. And so that's what he says to them. And in verse 5, He emphasizes what he's already taught. He says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you about this. So the Thessalonians have had two letters. They've also had Paul present with them, teaching them about the day of the Lord and the rapture. So he tells us that there are some indicators. Again, some of them are more clear than others, okay? But we can hold on to that. And really what he's telling the Thessalonians is, The day of the Lord has not come. Okay. The day of the Lord has not come. And then he's going to encourage them further in the rest of the text. Let's go to verse six together. Paul says, you know what currently restrains him. So he basically says, you know something, you should know something. When you see that text, Paul is assuming that the, that the reader knows what he's talking about. And he says, there is something that restrains the Antichrist. There has, there has been something since, since the very beginning that has restrained evil from becoming full-blown evil. And then it says, you know what currently restrains him so that he will be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawlessness, the lawless one will be revealed. Okay, this text right here is, is great encouragement. It's great encouragement for us. It's great encouragement for the Thessalonians, because when we think of the great tribulation, we think of the world being out of control okay? There's nothing that is in control. It's all just chaos. But I want you to know that even in the great tribulation, God is still in control. In fact, it says that currently there is someone restraining the Antichrist. And again, that someone, most orthodox teaching says that that someone is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. It's everywhere all the time. It lives inside believers and you know what it does for your life. It restrains you from from being a a complete and utter sinner. It convicts you of sin. It teaches you. It moves through you. That restrainer is also restraining the evil in this world from becoming full-blown evil. And so, This is great encouragement that God is in control of the restraining. But guess what? He's also in control of the unrestraints. It says that at his appointed time, the Antichrist will be revealed. So the text tells us that it's going to be God doing the revealing. It's God doing the restraining. He will unrestrain so that the Antichrist can be revealed. God is in control of the entire end times. There is nothing that has escaped him. There is nothing that is outside of his will, okay? Now, the first question you might ask yourself is, why would a holy God allow such unholiness to exist? Now, that's a good question. That's a fair question. And I want to say this, that God is so sovereign that he can actually use evil to accomplish his purpose. That's how sovereign God is. In our study in Daniel, we have been learning that God uses pagan ungodly nations to do his bidding, okay? And so God can even use in the end times, he can use the antichrist and he can use the spiritual forces of evil to accomplish his purpose. God uses evil to discipline his children. He's done it for a long time with the nation of Israel. He does it even in our life. God uses trial and trouble in our life to draw us to him. God also uses evil to bring judgment to the unrighteous. God's plans will not be defeated. I want to tell you what the end times looks like. Satan and the Antichrist think that they're running free. They're just trying to destroy everybody. But they are still under the sovereign will of God. I don't know how to explain that. Okay? But that's what scripture teaches. God is in control even of these end time events such as the Antichrist being revealed. Now... If we look at the second half of verse 8, we learn an amazing truth that is very clear. It says, the Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing with the brightness of his coming. Now, we have spent a long time this morning talking about the Antichrist. And in one verse, Paul says, Jesus is going to come back and take care of it. Okay. Those days are limited. If they were unlimited, Jesus said, everyone will be destroyed, but God is in control of the timetable and he will not let the antichrist run wild. Those days will be cut short by the coming of our Lord Jesus. And it says that he will destroy the antichrist with the breath of his mouth. He doesn't even have to pull out a weapon. Uh, in Revelation, it says that Jesus will destroy all of the armies of this world and all of the ungodliness with the sword of his mouth. That simply means he will destroy with his words. Our God is so powerful that when he comes back, he just has to speak it and it happens. He will destroy all of the wickedness that is here. He uses it to accomplish his purpose, but when they, it accomplishes whatever God's purposes are, he will destroy and will judge that wickedness. And then it also says that he will be brought to nothing with the brightness of his coming. Jesus' coming is going to be so bright that no one can hide, not even the Antichrist. So he will destroy And if you don't get anything today about the Antichrist and the rapture and all that, get this, God wins. We can hold on to that very tightly. We don't have to be confused. We don't have to stay up at night and worry. We have a God that is our shepherd that will walk with us through the darkest times. He will lead us, and in the end, he will be victorious. Now, To some, it is troubling that God can use evil to accomplish his purpose. And so Paul, I think, anticipates what what someone may ask, okay? And so he says God can use evil to accomplish his purpose, but don't get this wrong. God is not the author of evil. And verse 9 says, the coming of the lawless one, the coming of the Antichrist is based on Satan's workings. Okay, he He doesn't want you to get confused. God's not the author of evil. God uses evil to accomplish his purpose. But all of this evil is based on Satan's workings. And it says, with all kinds of false miracles and signs and wonders, and with every kind of unrighteous deception, he's going to use all of these things to deceive those who are perishing. So Satan is a deceiver. That's what he's trying to do. He knows his end. But he is out to destroy as many people as possible. He's out to deceive as many as he can. Okay, that's what he's in the business of doing is bringing death to people. And again, I think the text anticipates another question. Because a lot of times when we think about Satan deceiving somebody, we say, man, poor person, they were deceived by Satan. This is all Satan's fault. He's deceived them. How could God allow this? This isn't fair. Look what the text says. Just so we're clear on what Paul is saying, he says, they perish because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. So Satan is out tempting, he's out destroying, but the people that he's destroying and that he's tempting are people that have rejected the gospel. And when they stand before a holy God, they can't say, Satan made me do it. They will only be able to say, I rejected the gospel, I rejected the gospel, I bought into a lie of Satan, and now I'm under the judgment of God. Verse 11 is a very, very difficult verse of Scripture to understand for many of us. It says, for this reason, because they did not believe the gospel message and were not saved, for this reason God sends them a strong delusion so that they will not believe or they will only believe what is false. That's a hard verse to think about. But I want you to know something. We've seen this before in Scripture. If you think about Pharaoh for just a second, Pharaoh had nine opportunities to be obedient to God's word and to let the people go. And every time it's said that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, Pharaoh hardened his own heart on the 10th time, God sends a plague. He 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 sends the destroyer, and it says that on that 10th time that God hardened Pharaoh's hearts. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand, but let me explain it to you. People that are going to perish in the end times are going to be people that have not accepted the gospel message. The message has gone out to them. It's gone out to them clearly. They have rejected it, rejected it, rejected it. They've bought into the lie of Satan. And at some point, and again, it's different for every person, at some point, God will solidify that decision. He will say, that's what you want. That's where your heart wants to be. I'm going to give you over to that God desires that all men are saved, but when men are disobedient, when they reject the truth, he gives them over to what they want. And at some point, God is going to send a strong delusion so that these people, these people that have not accepted the gospel will only believe what is false. They rejected the gospel, and God solidifies that. There's a point in time coming where God is going to make all things final. And in verse 12, it says, so that all will be condemned. Okay, and then there's a little, there's a little hyphen there. It says, those who did not believe the truth but enjoyed unrighteousness. It's probably the saddest words in all of scripture. If you reject the truth, of the gospel, you will be condemned. That's very clear. That's probably some of the clearest teaching in this text. If you reject the gospel, if you enjoy unrighteousness, you will be condemned. God will give you over to that. Satan will deceive you. He will just bring you into what your heart is already wanting and you will be condemned. told you that in end-time studies, we've got to hold fast to the things that are clear. There is no clearer teaching than this. This is the greatest teaching about the end times, okay? Get this. There is an end, okay? That's the greatest truth of the end times. There is an end, God is going to bring finality to the world that we know and we are no longer going to be in favorable circumstances to be saved, to share the gospel. There is an end. If you don't get anything today, understand this. God tells us there is an end and it's very clear. At that end, there's only going to be two kinds of people. There's going to be those who... who, live with him for eternity and those who do not live with him for eternity. I pray today that you will make a decision to follow Jesus. I pray today that you do not get caught up in in worrying about the rapture and the Antichrist and when's it going to be revealed, but that you would think about what Jesus Christ has done for you and you would hold on to the truth of the gospel. We cannot be deceived. We cannot give up these primary teachings. We've got to hold on to them. We cannot be worried about times and dates. We cannot be worried about the identity of the Antichrist. We've gotta worry about souls. I've studied the end times, it's been my passion for 23 years. There There are a lot of benefits, there are a lot of encouragements in studying the end times but we cannot lose sight of the human factor. It's it's fun to talk about the coming of our Lord Jesus. There's nothing that brings me more joy than to sing about the coming of Jesus. But to some, that coming is gonna be a nightmare. We cannot disconnect the human factor from the end times. People are going to be condemned. Souls are going to be lost. We have to make some decisions today. This should motivate us more than anything.